take your copy of God's Word and turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke's Gospel, the 15th chapter. Luke's Gospel, the 15th chapter. I think all of us love to be welcomed in a warm way. I was talking with someone this morning, even as I was visiting around, and uh, they invited me into their home and they said, come uh, and we'll have a cup of coffee or we'll have a Coke or we'll have something like that. Now, and I'll love that, and I'll be there for the coffee. But also, you like it when a little lemon icebox pies kind of moved over into that area too, right? We love a warm welcome. We love people to say, hey, come in and visit with us and fellowship with us. And we do oftentimes all that we can to make sure that people feel welcome. This week, I hosted a few pastors from across the state here on Monday and Tuesday, and we went to great lengths to try to make sure that they felt welcome. We did everything that we could to somehow demonstrate what Ruston had to offer and the hospitality that we could provide for them. There's something about being welcomed that we all appreciate and the warm welcome that we can extend or that we can receive. But I tell you that one of the greatest things that we can ever experience in life is the warm welcome that God provides for us. That God accepts us, that He calls us in, that He welcomes us into His family. He welcomes us into His service. This morning we're going to look at a passage that is very familiar to you. Some of you have known this story for most of your life. You've heard it, you've read through it, and yet today I I pray that as we read through it again and we study it, that somehow God would affirm his welcome to us and that we would simply be welcomed back wherever we are in whatever state we have found ourselves, that we would be welcomed back to the love and the presence of God. Jesus is teaching. He's speaking to those who have actually come against him. And this is what he says as he begins this story. Beginning in verse 11, it says, Then he, that is Jesus, said, A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants." He arose and came to his father. When when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
and they began to be merry. Again, Jesus is telling this story. He is trying to address the Father's love and the Father's welcoming spirit to all individuals. You'll see in Luke chapter 15, it is quite the chapter that demonstrates God's grace and God's love. In the very beginning, those first two verses of chapter 15, it says that Jesus was actually fellowshipping with tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they bring this charge against Jesus. They say, this man, he receives sinners. He eats with them. He fellowships with them. And this is a charge that they bring against Jesus. And thus Jesus tells these three stories, these three parables, in order to confront that challenge, to confront that charge. He gives them first a story about the lost sheep, a story about the one who would be lost due to foolishness itself, of just continuing on in life and just wandering away. Then he tells the story about the lost coin, which speaks to the, to the neglect, of losing something out of just your own neglect. And then he tells the story here about this father who had two sons and how this one son chose willful rebellion in his life and how he was lost because of his own decision. He tells these stories to demonstrate how God welcomes sinners into his family. Again, it's, those are great stories, and they have such a meaning for us today. Look at this story in particular that we just read. Some call it the story or the parable of the prodigal son. Some call it the parable of the father's love. But as you read through it, you see certain dynamics. You see, first of all, I think, this rejection and rebellion of the younger son. It says in verse 12, The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. The idea is that this younger son comes to his father and says, Hey, I want what's coming to me. Now, guys, fathers, if your son came to you and said something like that, you would probably be willing to give them what was coming to them, right? I mean, I want you to hear the disrespect in this request. He comes to him and he says, I want what is mine and I want what is coming to me now. According to Deuteronomy, the Jewish law, the older son would receive two-thirds of his father's goods and property. The younger son would receive a third. Now, that was naturally, the inheritance naturally came when the father died. Just like we would think about inheritances today. Normally it would come when the father would die. So here's the son coming to his father and saying, Dad, I can't wait till you die. I can't wait for that long. I, I can't. I want what is mine now. Can you hear the disrespect? Can you hear the rejection of his father, his father's relationship, the rejection of his father's authority? And can you hear within that statement... Rebellion. And it says that this father divides to them his livelihood. In verse 13, not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. 
It says, after he receives his inheritance, he goes to a far country. Geographically, he goes to a Gentile area. You can tell because of the, the work that he will find himself in, the feeding of swine. He's in a Gentile area. But notice here that this area, this region, I believe it's not just geographical, but it is spiritual. Not only has the younger son separated himself from the father geographically, he has also separated himself from the father spiritually. He has gone to a far country. He has removed himself, and it says he has removed himself from the values of the father. He has removed himself from the priorities of the father. He has removed himself from that close fellowship with the father. And there he is going about his own business, doing what he wants to do, spending everything that he has because he left nothing, it says, at his father's house. And he wasted it. This idea of prodigal. What does that word mean, prodigal? It means wasteful. If you were to look at the word prodigal, you'll know that it means wasteful. So it is the story of the wasteful son. The prodigal son. He goes and he he spends all of his money on the excesses of life. Willful rejection. Willful rebellion. Unfortunately, for many of us, we can identify, we can even empathize with this story. Many of us in this place. Many of us in this place have had friends our family members, maybe even children ourselves that have gone off into the far country. There has been a rejection of the values. There has been a rejection of the family itself. There has been a willful rebellion. Unlike the other two stories that were told, I mentioned a moment ago that the sheep that is lost. Well, a sheep is lost out of foolishness. Think about a sheep for a moment. Sheep, I don't want to offend any of you who may be shepherds in this place, but a sheep is one of the dumbest animals to ever live, right? Isn't it amazing how God often refers to us as a sheep? I mean, a sheep just lives for the next blade of grass. And the sheep just naturally eats and eats and continues on until he is away from the flock. Not out of his own willful rebellion, it's just out of his own foolishness. The coin that is lost, I said, was lost out of neglect. Usually you don't say, hey, I'm going to make sure I lose my coin today. You don't say, I'm going to purposely lose my $100 bill today. You just lose it out of neglect. But this story, this story is a story about a young man who willfully rebels who willfully rejects his own father, his own, the own values that he had been raised. He rejects it all. And I say to you again, too many of us can empathize with that. We have seen individuals who have come maybe from a certain set of values and priorities and relationships, and yet at some point in their life, they make the choice. They make the choice to go out and to live on their own and to seek their own desires 
apart from the kingdom of God. I know some of you in this place and I have struggled with other families through these moments. But I am reminded that this father that we see here represented is a father of goodness and graciousness. Obviously, this father represents God himself, and yet it was still in this household that we're told a younger son rejects and rebels against all that he's known. So I want to say to you this morning, some of you families who are here, who are hurting, who are going through this time, and some of you are probably saying, what have I done? You know, we play the natural blame games in our lives. What have we done to be able to, to cause this or our children to go in this way? Just know there are those who still make their own decisions. There is still a willful attitude of rebellion. And just as this good father could not have made the decision for this son, so many times we can't make the decisions for our children. But I tell you what we can do. We can pray and we can hope. And we can see, hopefully, the work of God identified in their lives. Willful rebellion will come. Rejection will come. But notice this. As he is out there, he's out doing his own thing. He's enjoying life till its fullest. Verse 14, he runs into two hard realities. One, it says... But when he had spent all, because of his own choice, he had spent all. Isn't it amazing that there is no unlimited resource of money? Have you figured that out in your life yet? At some point, you can spend it all, especially if you're not making any more. And it says because of his own willful rebellion, he spends it all. And then notice the second part of that verse. Because here is God's timing. Here is God's decision in this matter. Because it says in verse 14, there arose a severe famine in that land. So it just so happens to coincide. Just so happens to coincide. Just the time that he's run out of all of his money, famine comes upon the land. Now, famine is often associated with God's activity. Now, some of you would say, what? God's blessing and God's... No, if you'll look at the Old Testament, and if you'll even consider the New Testament, you'll see that when God withholds His blessings from His people, often it is demonstrated in famine. In other words, this can be God's activity. God bringing discipline among his people. Some of you who come on Wednesday night, we studied the book of Judges just recently. Wonderful study, wasn't it? Didn't you have a good teacher? Wonderful teacher. But when God would somehow speak in his words of discipline, he would bring famine upon his people. And here, in this prodigal's life, as he is out there living, he spends it all, and God intervenes at that moment to bring a famine to bring discipline. And notice at the end of verse 14 it says, And he began to be in want. 
Why would God bring a famine in an individual's life? God would bring a famine in an individual's life to place them in a position so that they will look up and they will understand their desperate need for Him. One of the most difficult things I think we can pray in life is God do whatever it takes to bring them back to you. One of the most difficult statements we could ever make. And I would say to you, before you pray that prayer, you better consider the consequences of that prayer. And you need to be willing to accept whatever God says as He answers that prayer. Now see, for those of us who understand the eternal spiritual dynamic, we know that it is worth God bringing discipline in this life, in this moment, so that He can lead us to a greater relationship with Him. Even if it is a moment of suffering. Even if it is a moment of famine and need and despair. It is worth it. Listen to me. It is worth it. If it brings us to a greater relationship and fellowship with the Father above. And here God brings discipline in such a way that this young man is in want. He is in such despair. Notice verse 15. It says he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. For a Jewish young man to be out feeding swine. Well that would be a place of desperation and despair. How in the world could he ever think about doing such? But there he is feeding. And it says in verse 16, And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. It means that he continued to be in want. If you look at the way this verse is constructed, it says basically he continued to be in want, and people continued to look at him, and they continued to say, Hey, we can't help you out. Isn't it amazing when the money runs out how the friends run out? When the pleasures run out, the friends run out. And notice in this culture right now that pigs are more valuable than this young man. Because they're wanting to feed them and take care of them, but they are more important than the young man himself. Some of you have probably heard preachers say this. I grew up there in North Mississippi, and I loved to hear preachers preach. I just, I just love to do that. I know that's strange. I don't see many of you just particularly saying, yeah, amen, I love to hear a preacher preach. But I love to hear preachers preach, and I love the way they could craft things and they could say things on behalf of God. But I remember some of the preachers used to say something like this, you know, sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. And sin will cost you more than you want to pay. And I'll never forget those preachers saying that back in the day. That saying just was etched upon my memory of what sin can do and how it can take us from a place and it can lead us 
and to a place of despair and heartache. Oh, it can seem fun. I mean, these times, I'm sure that the young man had some type of fun. Don't say sin's not fun, because it is alluring to us sometimes, and it is fun. But in the long run, as we see its consequences upon our lives, we find despair. We find heartache. But get this. The story demonstrates to us rejection and rebellion of the young man. But it also reminds us of repentance and return that we see in this young man's life. You got to circle verse 17. At least those first few verses. Those first few words, that is. It says, but when he came to himself. When he came to himself. That word came, that verb, it is found in the tense that speaks to this definite, decisive act. In other words, there was a decisive moment in his life where he looked up and he had come to himself. Something had been triggered in his mind and he recognized where he was and what he needed to do. Haven't you ever just prayed for somebody to come to themselves, come to their senses, family members or friends, to watch their life and to watch it spiral out of control and and just pray somehow in some manner God would bring that individual to himself. It says when he had come to himself, or that is he came decisively, distinctly at one point in his life, he came to his senses. The pig pen has a way of doing that to you, doesn't it? Bringing you to your senses. And it says that he came to himself and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Notice here, there is a change that comes over this young man. He recognizes he needs to go back to the Father. There is a repentance here. Repentance means a turning. In other words, he is turned. He is turned from those priorities. He's turned from that lifestyle that he, would, he had been living. And now he had turned back to God. He had turned back to his Father. And he says, I'm going to go back. He has no ambition of sonship left. He doesn't think he'll be considered a son of this father. He just wants to be a hired servant of the father. He has no idea. He has no clue. He he says, "I, I don't think I could even be a part of the family anymore, but at least I could go back and I could be a servant of the father. And notice it says that he purposes in his heart To arise and to go. Verse 18, when I was studying this this week, that word, I will arise, in the original language, it's the word for resurrection. It's the word for resurrection. Now, later on, you'll hear the father declare, right? You'll hear the father declare that this son which was dead is now alive. So literally, it's like there has been a resurrection. 
He has come to his senses, and now he says, I am going. I'm going to be resurrected. I am going back to my father. What a tremendous image that is. That he experiences such a change in his life. And it says, and he arose and came to his father. Now notice, it, he had said in verse 18, I'll go back and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. In a few moments, in verse 21, you'll see that he repeats that basically verbatim. He says, I have sinned against heaven in your sight, no longer worthy to be called your son. Don't you know he rehearsed this over and over? I love the picture that Argel Smith painted this years ago when he preached upon this passage. He talked about how that young man must have headed back to the father. And as he headed back to the father, he must have been just repeating this over and over, what he's going to say. You know, you get ready. You know, you, you, you kind of rehearse what you're going to say when you get into those areas, right? Some of you have been there before. You knew you had a strong conversation, difficult conversation maybe coming up. And what would you do? You kind of rehearsed it. And you can almost hear the young man rehearsing it as he goes back, every step that he takes. Father, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven. Father, I, I, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Father, I, I, I just want to be a servant. And you can almost see with every step that he took closer to home, he was just repeating that over and over, hoping that God would show or his father would show mercy and grace. Notice this response. Because the area of repentance and return leads to a place of restoration and revelry, rejoicing. Notice verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. And ran and fell on his neck. And kissed him. There's a young man. He's coming up. He's coming up the street. The road. He's rehearsing. He's hoping that his father will accept him. And in the midst of it. His father. Comes running. The father was obviously waiting. The father was obviously looking. The father was hoping, anticipating, praying. And as he sees his son coming home, get this picture. The father, this oriental man, he lifts up his robe and he runs to his son. Well, men, Jewish men of that day, did not reflect such emotion. They, they didn't, let, let me just say this, they didn't even run. I kind of would have fit in back then probably, right? They didn't run, that would be, well, that would be less than stately. That would be less, that would be under the very purview of dignity to be able to run in such a way. And especially for a man to lift his garments and to run in such a manner. 
But you know what? The father was not concerned about all of the ritual or concerns about dignity or honor. All he knew was, my son is coming home. My son is coming home. And the father ran. Now, look what it says. It says he fell upon him that he kissed him. In the original language, you could say that he kissed him again and again and again. Do you realize the risk that the father had taken in welcoming the son back in such a way? You see, in that day and in that time, if a son would have acted as this son had, it would have been expected that he would have been cut off from the family and from the community. This son, well, this son in the eyes of the community, this son would be dead. And for the father to come and to embrace him in such a public manner and to love him in such a way, well, it would create all types of controversy. It would be a scandal in the community. But again, the father didn't seem consumed with the idea of scandal. The father was happy to welcome his son home. And you got to love this, right? I mean, just, just love this. I said it's all about revelry and rejoicing. It says in verse uh, 22, as the son's sitting there trying to make his speech before his father, trying to make... The father, he's having none of that. He just says, hey, servants, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. The father says, it is party time. We are celebrating. We are rejoicing. You, you bring that robe... My boy, he's going to have our robe on. He's going to have the ring. He's going to have the sense of authority and belonging because he has come home. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now I say to you that it was scandalous. You can even see it in the response of the older brother. I'm not going to go through that today. Some of you... Uh, that were here a few weeks ago, you'll remember that I talked about that older brother syndrome, not being able to be happy when people come back to the father. But the older brother, well, he knows it's a scandal. He says, what are you doing? Well, I mean, he was out there, he did all his stuff, he lived like he did, and why in the world would you welcome him back? You see, the elder brother thought the father was the one who was the prodigal. What do you mean by that? I told you prodigal means wasteful. He felt like the father was wasteful. Wasteful with grace itself. But my friends, aren't we thankful that the God above has been so generous and if some people even deem it to be wasteful, he has been so generous with his grace to us. 
few years ago, I was traveling home for Thanksgiving. I had called my folks and I said, I just need a little time off. I'm going to come up there and uh, I'll be there that Sunday before Thanksgiving. I'm just going to spend a few days. My family's coming. They said, that's great. That's awesome. Mama said, you can preach at the church when you come. Well, Mama, I, I said that I wanted just kind of a little time and rest. And, you know, I really don't want to pray. I, re- I just, I really don't want to preach when I come up there. She said, that's awesome. That's great. You'll preach. Come Sunday morning. Uh, I've talked to, I'll talk to the pastor. And Okay, Mama. All right. Okay. Because you do what Mama says, right? So I went up there, and I was not real happy about it. Now, I love to preach. Love to share. But it was just one of those moments that I thought, you know, if I only had a Sunday off. and But anyway, I'll do what Mama says. So I went, gathered in the little church there that Sunday morning. We were singing together. It was a good crowd that day. I got up to preach. I opened to Luke chapter 15. I was going to preach this story of the younger son, the loving father. I look back into the congregation. As I look back, I saw my brother, my oldest brother. Now understand that when I saw him, I thought to myself, oh no. Now I know you don't think we preachers can think this fast on our feet, but I thought to myself, oh no. What am I doing? What is he doing here? You see, my brother had probably only heard me preach two or three times. And that moment in his life, he had probably only been in the church two or three times in 30 years. And I said, you know, if I preach this this morning, he's going to think I'm talking just to him. And I wasn't planning on it that way because I didn't even know he was going to be there. I had no idea he'd be there. But he's going to think that I'm talking just to him. And for a brief moment, I was thinking to myself, do I need to, do I need to switch passages? Let me just preach something else, and that way I won't offend him. And... But then I just settled on this passage. I said, this is what I knew I was supposed to do. I prayed to God and asked him, this is what I'm supposed to do. So I preached. Did a better job that day than I did today, I think. I finished. I sat down on the front pew. First verse went by. The second one was beginning. And I sat there on that front pew and I was praying. And all of a sudden, sudden I could hear my brother talking to my pastor. And I could hear what God was doing in his heart and life. You see, my my brother, well, not a bad guy, but a guy who had been out of the will of God for years and years and years. I told you he had not been in church probably two or three times in 30 years. A guy who had nothing to do with the church or with what God wanted and really didn't want to be around many of us. That day I saw my brother... 
come back to the Lord. I saw this story reenacted right before my very eyes. And I'll tell you, there were days in my life where I said, you know what, I don't, I just, I'm not sure he'll, he'll ever come to the Lord. I hate to admit that to you, but I was. I was at that point, I, hey, I've seen his life, and I, I, I just, I don't know if he ever will. But that day as he came, and as he called on to that pastor, and as he committed himself afresh and anew, I knew God had done something. Well, it was a small church again, and we represented the small community in which we lived. And everybody in that community knew everything else that went on in life, in everybody's life. You know what I'm talking about? So they had known, my brother, and they had known how he had walked away from the Lord. So when he came, can you imagine the rejoicing that took place and the celebration? I mean, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. People were just happy. Isn't there something about joy over the one who comes and returns? Remember, if it's the one sheep that comes back and is found, all of heaven itself rejoices. When they find the coin, they rejoice. When this son comes home, the father welcomes and rejoices. That mood and attitude of celebration. May I tell you today that my brother sings in the choir at one of the little churches up there, North Mississippi. My dad told me the other day that he was even leading choir practice. I said, what? <laughs> God placed within his life a godly woman to be married to. And while he is not perfect, thank God he has come home. My friends, I say that to you today to remind you of the power of God's love and compassion and work. Too often we read the stories that we've heard for so long and we almost dismiss them as some type of nice story Maybe even, maybe even a mythical kind of story. But let me tell you that the stories of God's love and God's work, it is powerful. And those stories are still being written today. And I don't know where you are in your life personally. Some of you in this place, some of you may be in that far country. I'm not talking about geographically, I'm talking about spiritually. You just moved away from him. But I promise you today, I promise you based upon God's word that if you come to him and if you humble yourself, if you will come to your senses and allow the God of heaven to work in your life, he will welcome you back home. For those of us who are in this place and we've had the prodigals, we've had them in our lives, we still have them in our lives. May I say to you, never give up hope. Keep praying. Keep seeking. Keep looking to the God of heaven to do his work in his own way. Today in this place, would we be willing 
to submit our lives wherever we are, whatever the burden is that we carry. May we submit our lives to God Himself, the loving, compassionate Father. And may we see His welcoming Spirit, His grace and His generosity in our hearts and lives. May we pray for it and may we pray for those who continue need, continually need to seek Him in their lives. Let's pray together. Father, we pause before You this morning. And Lord, we pray that You would speak across this congregation right now. Father, that You would call those who are just out in their own desire and priorities that you'd call them back to you. Father, we know that as they take a step to you, that you run to them. God, we pray for those in our lives, our family, so many of them, so many of them who are wayward right now. And God, we pray that you would give us strength to be witnesses that you would give us a burden to pray and to seek. Father, we pray, we look forward to that day when we're able to celebrate together, rejoice in your work and in their return. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name.